Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Tim Henry is a man of many talents, a sailor, surfer, a windsurfer, journalist, artist, and more. Until recently, Tim was the managing editor at Latitude 38, and he still writes a number of stories for the magazine. Tim and I cover a lot of ground in this episode. I got to know Tim as I was starting this podcast, and he's been a great supporter of the show ever since it started. He's connected me with a lot of my guests. Actually, at the beginning of this conversation, we remember Luke McSweeney Mayhew, a wonderful person who Tim introduced me to, and Luke tragically died recently while working on his schooner in Maine. But Tim and I talk about the Sausalito general plan, anchor outs in Richardson Bay, BCDC, Berkeley Marina, and a whole lot more in this interview. So, enjoy. This is an amazing setting. So before we even get into the podcast, I'm going to ask you, Tim, to... uh, just describe where we are sitting. Uh, we are on the, I guess, the eastern most part of San Francisco Bay. Uh, we're right across from Paradise Cove. Uh, so the, the town is San Quentin. Uh, San Quentin Prison is right there, but this is San Quentin Village. Uh, San Quentin Beach is right down below. And then we're right next to the Richmond San Rafael Bridge. And on the other side of that is San Rafael and San Rafael Bay and the Brothers Lighthouse and the Sisters in China Camp. It's a gorgeous night here. We're sitting outside. We've got a quarter moon there and some stars out. You might hear the Richmond San Rafael Bridge in the background, but it's kind of a, a soothing hum there. Yeah, background noise, white noise. How long have you been here? Uh, exactly a year now. Cool. Well, I have to thank you because you are an early supporter of this podcast and really a partner in crime because uh, often early on I would read something in Latitude 38 and I'd hurriedly compose an email to Tim saying, Tim, Tim, can you can you put me in touch with so-and-so? <laughs> um, I have to talk to them. Um, and actually, one of our first collaborations was with a gentleman named Luke McSweeney Mayhew who was on episode seven of the podcast Mm. and Mm. you did a profile of him and you just told me that you got news just uh, the other day that that he passed away which is really devastating yeah what do you know about the circumstances I don't know much Uh, he was in Maine had just bought a schooner, I believe, in Booth Bay, Maine, and was up the rig and fell. Mm. And that's basically all I know. He passed away at the scene. Um, it, it's just terrible. I mean, I just don't even have any words to, to describe it. I was saying earlier how in the sailing world, you're used to people passing on and some of these older sailors, and, and when they pass on, you, you talk about their lives and their accomplishments, but it's so tough to have someone so young just go so quickly uh, and 
I'm just speechless. There's just nothing to say other than it's it's just terribly sad, and I, I feel terrible for his his family and the community around him. Yeah. He was... I have to say, I, I got real joy out of meeting him and talking to him aboard his pinky schooner. He did a lot of traditional rigging. He was very yeah. much um, ensconced in the traditional sailing arts, but he was also a merchant marine. Um, mm. And if you haven't read uh, Tim's profile of Luke, I urge you to go do that. Do you, do you remember what when it was? It was the May 2019, in the May 2019 issue of okay. Latitude 38, I so believe. you can find that online. And it was episode seven of this podcast so early on that I that I talked to him so I agree that he was such an incredible guy I mean such a wealth of knowledge so enthusiastic um, I had such a great time being on Tiger on his on his schooner and drinking a beer with him and I found him to be really accessible even though he's such a wealth of knowledge I, I feel like he could have been kind of snooty or you know, sort of elitist about it. And he, he just wasn't that way at all. He was yeah. just all about the passion for what he did. And, you know, he was happy to explain things to me about traditional boats that I know nothing about. So I remember him telling me all about the tattoos uh, on the various tattoos on his feet and other places. There was some great, he had many, many great stories. He will be yeah. sorely missed. Yeah. So that was one of the early partnerships we had, but you went on to help me in, in many ways, and I, I often called you up and said, hey, tell me more about this story. And um, as I said in the intro, Tim was editor for uh, Latitude 38. For, for how long were you editor? Uh, for three years. Okay. Um, I've since scaled back in the COVID economy. Yeah. Uh, but I still work and write for Latitude a little bit yeah. uh, and still edit letters. I want to dive into some of the many really interesting stories you've written your beat was uh, well how would you describe your beat at latitude uh it's uh, a great question basically the answer is that i did everything not racing okay um but with that said i did write about the america's cup which was great for me because i grew up with it i grew up with dennis connor and yeah. going to Fremantle in 87 but I tried to bring some uh, some journalism to Latitude and tried to get into issues of waterfront development. And you end up writing about homelessness when you're talking about the waterfront in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So I really tried to, to kind of dive into those things, environmental concerns and yeah, things like that. And we're going to get to that for sure. But first, I want to just talk to you, like I do with all guests, about how you got into sailing. I know you're a big windsurfer now, but where did being on the water and sailing start with you? So I grew up in San Diego and my stepfather was Dutch and was a came from a maritime background basically. Mm -hmm. He ran a dredger in Saudi Arabia and delivered yachts all over the world. And so it was just natural that we were gonna be sent off to sailing camp. <laughs> I started at uh, Southwestern Yacht Club, and I hated sailing right when I started. I, I'm not even sure why. I was just kind of that kind of kid that just didn't like things that my parents asked me to do. Sure. And it took a while. Um, I actually walked away from sailing after a few years as a junior, and then I came back to it in my 20s. 
uh, just sort of out of the blue, a friend said, hey, do you want to go sailing? And I got behind the wheeler, I got on the tiller, and I was like, oh, this is, this feels like home. This is, this is something that I've always liked doing. So that early introduction paid off sometime, somehow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) eventually, eventually it did. And then my stepfather helped me to get work on a on a yacht that he was managing. It was in San Diego in 1995 during the America's Cup, the last America's Cup in San Diego. And I eventually went on that boat as delivery crew to Tahiti. And then that's when my life just completely changed and boats became a, an integral part of my life ever since then. And when did the writing about boats come in? I guess it's been all along. I've always written, uh-huh. um, but I went back to journalism school in my early 30s, and I didn't originally want to write about boats. I was big into surfing back then, and I wanted to write about that, and I just sort of gravitated back towards boats. I read um, Bernard Mortissier's The Long Way in mm-hmm. 2014, and I was kind of like, I really want to get back into this. This it's been too long. I had been windsurfing at that point for for a long time, but um, there was something about Matissier that really drove me back into the into sailing culture, and and really led to to being at Latitude three years later. Really, absolutely, yeah, yeah, in a in a sort of roundabout way or <laughs> a long way, if I can if I can use that pun. The long way, that's good. You were surfing, and then you put the sailing and the surfing together to get into windsurfing? How'd that happen? (laughs) Yeah. I was working at a Club Med, actually. Where? In in 2001 in the Turks and Caicos Islands, Uh which is known as Club Med Turquoise, spelled T-U-R-K. The Turks and Caicos are basically the end of the Bahamian chain, so they they look like the Bahamas. They're uh, flat and sandy with beautiful, beautiful water. And we had all of the gear there. I was actually teaching windsurfing before I, I knew how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So uh, here's a good advertisement for people going to Club Med. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it's pretty easy to teach someone just how to stand on the board and, and yeah. pull up the sail. And then I started just kind of teaching myself and taking out smaller boards and bigger sails. And with windsurfing, really, it's the first time that you get planing. You feel that board skipping across the water. And maybe if you're lucky, you get into the foot straps, and that's it. Then you're, most people are pretty much hooked from there. I worked at another windsurfing shop on Martha's Vineyard in 2004 and bought my first quiver, and then I moved out to the Bay in 2005. And the Bay Area is the, one of the greatest places in the world to windsurf just because the season is so, is so long and so perfect. That's great. And you still head right out here to where we're looking and. Go regularly, I understand. Yeah, this summer I was um, sailing right off from the house, which was, I didn't realize it, but it was kind of a boyhood dream to be able to to windsurf right from my house. It was very humbling. It's very challenging to sail out here. If you break down, which I did one time, you are going to end up in the Richmond Bridge. Or the prison right over here. That's right. <laughs> or, or the Or the giant prison. Absolutely. There's something about the chop here that's really intense. You get kind of a rebound off of the bridge. And so you have, when you're sailing on starboard tack, you have waves coming at you from almost three different directions. And it's just a really rough ride. It's hard to find your line through it. And then port tack coming back is a little bit better as you're going sort of downswell. But uh, yeah, it it was a humbling experience. But 
my favorite windsurfing spots in Point Isabel and Berkeley are just 11 minutes across the bridge. So uh, it's pretty great. epic. You're saying we, we are still technically on San Francisco Bay here, just south of the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge, and then you pop under and you're in... San Rafael Bay. San Rafael Bay. Yeah. It doesn't turn into San Pablo Bay until you go around the corner of China Camp, right? That is my best understanding, yeah. and I really hope I'm not wrong on this because this is something I should really know. But I think that's that's basically right. I should also say that we're looking at, through these trees, you'd be looking at Red Rock. Uh-huh. And then beyond that is Richmond and Point Richmond. Then you have Brooks Island, which is where Point Isabel is. So... Yeah, we're kind of in a in an odd little corner, kind of a tucked away little corner of the bay. It is a tucked away little corner of the bay, and and it makes me think that you've really, well, you've lived here in the Bay Area how long? Fifteen years. Fifteen years, and you've you've done a good exploration of a lot of the waterfront. Yes. To find this this little hidden gem here, but let's jump into some of the areas that are more well known that you've dug into as a journalist, and I, and I want to start with. Sausalito, mm-hmm. uh, big story there with all the changes that are happening there, all the history, and you wrote a fabulous article looking at the maritime history and marineship, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on, well, both the history and looking forward, what you see happening as Sausalito mm-hmm. moves forward. Sausalito right now is debating their general plan, and we should all take a moment and acknowledge how boring that is or how boring that sounds. It's just, it sounds so hopelessly bureaucratic and, and like something that could never possibly really affect our lives in a meaningful way. And what it really means to discuss the general plan is that they're deciding what the city is going to look like for the next 20 years. The, the general plan will be law until 2040. And what's really on the table is the working waterfront and the marine ship, among other things, but that's certainly on the table. And they're trying to figure out, do they want to develop Sausalito and bring in more housing, or do they want to preserve this working waterfront? In the end, it, it kind of comes down to how much people value a place like a working waterfront and how much they want to hang on to it and hang on to that lifestyle. But it's not just the lifestyle it's the, the economics of the marineship. It brings in the most tax revenue in terms of property tax and commercial tax uh, as any sector of the economy in Sausalito. I'm going to stop you just for a second because I know marineship was a shipyard mm. in Sausalito during World War II. Mm. What is marineship defined as now? Mm. It, it is a mile, roughly mile-long stretch of land and it's the former World War II shipyard that was built uh, in the 1940s. And it was basically a neighborhood was, was raised. They kicked everyone out, and then they dynamited it. And then they took all the refuse and dumped it into the bay and built it as quickly as possible. And I think in something like a year, they were able to build 96 Liberty ships, like 96 400-foot boats for the war effort. So it was this incredible effort of World War II machine to to aid the war effort. Um, and it's, I, I read something recently in the Chronicle, it's the most intact World War II shipyard in the country, hmm. or something like that. They have the timbers 
that are still there and it, it has a few the the industrial center building the icv building is uh is the original building where they would uh what do you call it loft the uh the lines of of the liberty ships and now that's uh, that's all artist studios in there mm. so the there's very clear connections from the past to the present as far as what the marine ship is it was a world war ii shipyard and then immediately became a haven for artists artisans and shipwrights and and marine people okay and is it zones particularly for marine industry now yes exactly in 1980 they were feeling the pressure from um from development and so they decided we need to protect this thing and they wrote what was called the marine ship specific plan the msp and that basically zoned it for maritime and light industrial use only and the MSP is now kind of on the chopping block and they're talking about folding it up into the new general plan. And one of the big concerns is that there's going to be a lax period where between taking out the MSP and implementing the general plan, some developer could conceivably go in and just build something and they could go to court and say, well, the law wasn't in effect yet. Now that's a, I don't want to be conspiratorial and you know, it's important in these community debates to, you know, to keep a clear mind and to, to keep in mind that it's a community trying to come together and to do a lot of different things with limited money and limited space, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to make it sound like there are evil actors in this, but there's a lot of money at stake. And there's, mm. there's certainly people that, that want to see residential development, you know, everywhere in the Bay Area needs housing. So sure the pressure to build housing is, is so enormous. And there's state laws that say you have to build housing in some cases. Mm. And so the city has to sort of reconcile that and say, you know, Sausalito is pretty, is pretty packed. I mean, it's, it's built well into the hill and there's not a lot of room for, for anything else. So it's just a lot of pressure. It's, it's really interesting to see a community kind of figure itself out in that way. Yeah. Housing is obviously one of the issues that it touches on Homelessness, yes, is another thing you've written about there, particularly those who are anchor outs in Richardson Bay. Yes, has been an issue for years, going going back. I understand, mm. um, but again, you did another fascinating piece. Talk a little bit about the intricacies of and difficulties of what Sausalito is trying to do around anchor outs. So when I wrote my, my article in 2018 about Richardson Bay, that felt like the start of a new era. I think it started with Sausalito going on its own. It was part of the Richardson Bay Regional Agency, the RBRA. I have the acronym right, and I don't that's know right. if I have the, <laughs> that's the, the words right. By the way, that's... We'll fact you, check you on it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. When you do these kind of stories, it's just acronym soup at, at some I'm points. Sure. It's just all this technical minutia. So Sausalito had decided to go on its own and they really started to enforce the law. Now, the law in Richardson Bay is highly debatable. It is the only federal anchorage uh, in the Bay Area, but what does that mean exactly is, is a subject of fierce debate. Some people think that it means they have the, the absolute right to anchor there no matter what and that no other laws apply to them. Some other people think that there's just small navigational rules that apply in federal anchorages. But basically what Sausalito did was, they first of all, they started to inventory everyone that was there. 
uh, and just kind of assess what boats were inhabited, what boats weren't, um, what boats were just storage, which were quite a few. I mean, if yeah, you, you s sail around there and you see some there just piled high with junk. It's really a, a remarkable place in, in good ways and bad. I mean, I've seen some incredible boats on Richardson Bay, you know, some boats that are just ancient and, you know, barely floating. Boats sink there all the time. And basically, they they went in and cleaned all of that up. I think the amount of people that were living there is is down to to just a few dozen at this point. I mean, it might be is around like 25 people that mm. are permanent anchorouts on Richardson Bay. And at the same time, there's a real community yes. of people who are anchorouts there who look out for each other, all different ages. Yes. Because many are living on very little. Yes. So everyone would always say that there's two communities there. There's the hardcore anchor out community who are, are seasoned sailors and who just choose that lifestyle and that's the way they want to live. And then the other aspect are basically homeless people. And in the Bay Area, there are a ton of old boats that you can get for basically free. Yeah. And a lot of people were, were basically just squatting on Richardson Bay. Mm. And those were really the two the two communities that prevailed there. And then, of course, transient boats that were, were sure. passing through town, which, by the way, includes giant yachts and Jerry Jones on, on like a 300-foot yacht, as well as, you know, people sailing down from Canada and on their way to Mexico and on their way to do the Baja Ha Ha. So, yeah, a really, really interesting community. The, the sailing community there was, was definitely tight, and they looked out for each other. And they were always quick to say, you know, we're responsible we respect the, the shoreside community and, you know, don't judge all of us based on this contingent that's here. That's, you know, drugs were a heavy, heavy problem throughout the Anchorage. Mm -hmm. um, Such an interesting mix. Like the Bay Area itself. Exactly. Now, one of the agencies <laughs> that oversees much of the waterfront is the BCDC. And that acronym stands for... The Bay Conservancy and Development Commission. Thank you. And just the mention of their name can raise ire with many. Yes. Uh, this is also a story you followed. Tell us about the recent rulings about the BCDC and what's been happening recently there. Yeah, where do you start with the BCDC? <laughs> uh, it was really a bizarre story to walk into, and it started with West Point Harbor in Redwood City, just a debate between the BCDC and that harbor over a, a lot of different things, a lot of small technical things. A relatively new marina that was being developed and that ran into a lot of, I guess, issues with BCDC that holding them up. Correct, yeah. It, the, it's the newest marina in the Bay Area, I believe. It's a gorgeous spot. It's It was nothing prior to it being West Point Harbor. It was just a, it was what's called a bitterin pond, which was basically a toxic sludge pond. Okay. And they developed it, and now there are walking trails down there and beautiful docks. And there's a new, I believe there's a new yacht club going in on that property as well. So the BCDC kind of started with West Point Harbor, there were other issues throughout the bay with the BCDC up in uh, Buckler, I believe it's Buckler Island up in the Delta. Let, let me, I'm going to stop you just for a second yeah. so that we can give listeners a little bit of context. Oh, yeah. What is, what is BCDC chartered to do? 
In the 50s, they were chartered to regulate Bayfill and to provide public access, I think, were the two major tenets of their mission. By regulating Bayfill, basically just making sure that people weren't dumping trash into, into San Francisco Bay. I didn't grow up here, but I heard in the 70s and 80s, San Francisco Bay was disgusting. And people said the water smelled and people used to just drive down to the shore and like dump their mattress and their TV into the bay. And that's, that's just kind of the way it was. So they were first tasked with, with kind of stopping that and then with making sure to provide public access to the bay as well. Mm. And I think everyone would agree that they did an amazing job at those two things. They accomplished both and a lot of people feel like they sort of came off the rails. There's a lot of, again, it's really difficult to, to say like, what's wrong with the BCDC? But some people say the culture there is, has just become very sort of uh, self-reflective and they're just constantly studying things rather than taking action. Mm. They don't have a lot of enforcement power, so their, their enforcement power is through levying fines. And that's basically the one mechanism that they have. Do people think they're too aggressive with their fines? What is the complaint? Too aggressive with their fines, but some of the things that they were actually fining marinas and restaurants over, um, because they are in charge of everything within 100 feet of the bay, basically. So they, they oversee a lot of wow. of restaurants and non-marina properties and non-boating properties. They might be able to get us right here. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm curious, yeah, how residential factors into their into their charter. Some of the fines were over... At West Point Harbor, there were fines over the, the kind of parking signs that they had and the way they were painted on the cement and the, the types of plants and trees that they had around the parking signs. There were complaints about the, the way that they trimmed their, their trails, their public access trails around West Point Harbor. And anyone looking from the outside would say, like, well, that's ridiculous. You know, this, these are, this is such small stuff. Why are you worried about that? And what the BCDC would say and what they did tell me was that the rules are the rules and we can't just pass on things we have to enforce every part of a property but yeah the fines were were just outrageous the and it was the culture really it seemed like it was these these personality conflicts rather than debating the law they were debating conflicts with with particular owners of places so in 2018 there was an audit of the bcdc by the state of california the result of that was that the BCDC was found to be negligent in their duties. For example, Richardson Bay, they, they had failed to enforce any kind of rules or laws around the liveaboards and anchor outs. Or pardon, just around the anchor outs. The liveaboards are, are fall within, within marina rules okay. and jurisdictions. Just recently, there was a law passed that reflected that audit and that, that said the BCDC has to, to reform and... So, so this was a law that Newsom, Gavin Newsom just signed? Yes. And what does it do? It's, <laughs> what does it do exactly? It's a great question. <laughs> Put you on the spot here. <laughs> well, it's more a question of everyone that worked at the BCDC still does. No one's been fired. There's been no reprimands. When the audit came out, the language was really pretty strong in that it said that some of their enforcement was vindictive. But there's been no substantial cultural change at the agency. 
this new law has basically said it, it's technical things like they it's the way they evaluate their cases and manage their caseload and manage their staff and things that you know are important within the operation but don't really address the culture the culture itself oh, interesting so it'll be it'll and be a wait and see i should just say that this is this is my opinion and sure. my analysis this i don't and by the way this is also one thing about my job is that I never really had a chance to dive too deeply into anything. So this is just a very sort of cursory pass at, at my understanding of this. I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm an expert on the BCDC. Well, what I like is that you have taken the time to follow these things. So those of us who read one article can get outraged about something, but you have more of a perspective and a bigger picture having followed this for years. So that's why it's always great to talk to you and hear your opinion about these things, hear your perspective. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's it's been fun and you know, incredibly enlightening to to cover this beat and to cover the bay. And yeah, I hope I can shed some light on, on some things, but I always try just to acknowledge that all my quote unquote investigations were just they were what they were. I just did the best with the time and the resources that I had. That's all you can do. Another entity that a lot of sailors care deeply about here in the Bay Area and that BCDC is involved in, I believe, mm. is Berkeley Marina. Yes. There are issues with, well, we get back to homelessness, we get back to housing, right. <laughs> all the, the key issues here in the Bay Area. But on, another issue is that it's really in disrepair. Yes. And you've d looked into that a bit. What have you learned about Berkeley Marina and what's happening there? First of all, I want to say that Berkeley Marina is one of my favorite places in the world, and it's the first place that on the waterfront that I went to when I moved to the Bay Area in 2005. And I had my brand new windsurfer in my car and had no idea what I was doing and just kind of found my way down there and stumbled on it. And I've been sailing there ever since. And, and so it's, it's very near and dear to my heart. I, it's honestly one of my favorite places on the planet, even though it's this weird, funky, cold rocky and and now as you say like fallen into disrepair diamond in the rough of a of a marina and again it's where do you start with berkeley marina it it, it really starts with the way it's it's financed so berkeley marina is maintained through taxes on businesses there and basically they've been falling way short of being able to fund themselves and there is one restaurant which is right next to the windsurfing launch that I've used for 15 years called His Lordships, which shut down in 2018 uh, at the end of its 50-year lease. Okay. And ever since that shut down, Berkeley Marina is now in the red by like a million dollars a year mm. or something. And so they don't have enough money to, to fund this basic, basic infrastructure. Where was the money coming from from the restaurant to fund the... Marina. The, the tax revenues from the restaurants and businesses, which also includes uh, two hotels in, so, in okay, Berkeley yeah. Marina mm -hmm. and Berkeley Marine Center and OCSC Sailing. Yeah. Um, the revenue from those taxes was used to, to finance the, the park staff or, and the, the infrastructure itself. Now, the infrastructure was all built in the 60s. And according to one report, it's it's reached the end of its useful life. Just the road that you take oh to God. get down to the marina. I was driving on it this weekend, and my daughter was with me, and she says, why is this road so bumpy? 
Yeah. And I said, well, it's, I think it's built on a pier, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, it's built on the old uh, Berkeley Pier, which was a, a ferry pier back in, I think, way back until 1919, because it was used after the San Francisco earthquake as a primary way for refugees from San Francisco to get back to the city wow. to go to work. Um, and so, yeah, University Avenue going into Berkeley Marina is like the worst road in America, basically. Um, it's, it's coming out that's worse, so it would be going eastbound mm -hmm. is, is the really bad direction. Yeah, that's the part we were on <laughs> when she asked. Going in's not so bad, but coming out is just, is just horrendous. And they were supposed to repave that this year, and I think with COVID, uh. a lot of things have been been pushed back but um there have been there have been small improvements to to berkeley marina especially around cal sailing which is probably the greatest community sailing center that i've ever seen and it's just it's taught so many people how to sail in windsurf for pennies on the dollar i think you had you know talked about wanting to get into windsurfing last year and, yeah. and i had said like you got to go to cal sailing just yeah. because they have all the gear but they also have uh instructors it's completely volunteer run so basically you learn how to sail and once you're good enough then you start teaching the next person how to sail it's kind of this uh this ladder that just is, is phenomenal i've just never seen anything and it's like it. very unusual in the bay area most places if you want to sail around here you have to join a club you have to become a member and pay an right. annual fee and then you have to pay to rent the boats and right this is a very affordable way to get out on the boats quickly and learn how yeah. to sail so the but beautiful thing about Berkeley is that it's just a machine and, and you can just yeah. set your watch by the breeze. You can also stay as, as safe and you can stay in calm, glassy water as much as you want. But it, as you want to start to venture out, you just go further and further upwind, basically, towards San Francisco. And you're in, you know, gnarlier and gnarlier conditions and, and more <laughs> swell and more wind. That's great. We touched on this, but one of the issues at Berkeley circling back to Berkeley Marina is the is the homelessness issue there and that, yeah. again we bring back in BCDC talk a little bit about the recent action that happened there yeah so homelessness has been a, a terrible issue around the marina for going on two years now after his lordship's closed the entire parking lot was full of RVs and there's horrific stories about liveaboards encountering all sorts of terrible things um, and they they kicked all the RVs out and uh, last year I spoke with the um, the council person for I believe it's district one is where the marina is and she told me that she had considered putting homeless out there but after speaking with the liveaboard she decided like no this is this is not a good idea this community's been through enough and it's just not a good place for a homeless population to, to live it's small it's cold it's windy mm -hmm. But during COVID, apparently the mayor has, has special powers. I was just talking to a very informed person in the community who works at Latitude 38s or, or writes for them. Uh, and he told me that he's not even sure what the special powers mean. But with COVID, there's this emergency situation. And so certain laws just seem to not apply or, or whatever is going on right now. But basically, the mayor had said, we want to try and put this encampment out at the marina and it looked like it was going to happen and at the last second the bcdc stepped in and said no you can't do this because it violates the recreation permit that goes back to 1913. berkeley marina is actually 
not owned by the city, but it's a it's a trust from the state of California. Huh. It's the State Lands Commission, I believe. Again, Ben, when you're when you're talking about these things, you just get into sub agency after sub agency. Oh. oh my gosh, <laughs> it's following the trails and the paperwork. <laughs> oh my gosh, going back decades. Oh, decades. Yeah, yeah, yes, a century at this point. Yeah, um, it's 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 just crazy. At the same time, it's also what gives the Bay Area so much history. Sometimes there's not a lot of context between the past and the present, and you know where we are in the in the present is so far beyond what it was originally built for or, or what the population of the Bay Area was at the time. Yeah. So it has yeah. all these different pressures. Yeah. So the BC DC came in and and shut down the the encampment at at Berkeley Marina and just said it's not the right thing. But I am told that that is not completely resolved and that that could potentially flare back up at some point. And that's kind of indicative of the way a lot of these things work is that they're never really resolved. They're just, you just kind of kick the can down the road for a long time and you avoid a bad decision, but maybe you'll make that bad decision again in, in five years. And that's true in Sausalito and that's true in Berkeley and it's true in, in Oakland and everywhere. Well, stay tuned to the pages of Latitude 38 because you're still writing about these issues, right? Correct. Yeah. I just put a story out today about the Marin ship. It, it was an update, but you don't really dip your toes into the story every now and then. It's it's so hard to to not get caught up in, in all this minutia. Like it's hard to step back and, and give a broad view. And it's this is where journalism fails sometimes. Is you're you're not really meant to to dumb things down and always give a broad view. Like th- these are technical things that require a lot of focus and understanding, but the average citizen doesn't have time to get into it and so hopefully there's a way to talk about these things in a broad sense that that just lets people know why these things are important no i think you're doing those who care about the waterfront and sailors a huge service by paying attention to these things. thanks thanks Thanks. two other topics that i know i want to talk to you about Uh, don't care what which order we talk about them but uh i know you're passionate about getting out on the water in tahoe not exactly Bay Area, but Lake Tahoe. Yes. I love Tahoe. I, I started going there in 2005, and I've lived in Tahoe at two different points in my life and worked at resorts in Tahoe at two different points in my life. I've never lived there for more than a few months. I actually haven't been to Tahoe in the summer in like 25 years, but I love skiing and snowboarding. Tahoe is such a special place. And for some reason, the idea of sailing on Lake Tahoe just seems so romantic and and so so cool to me i guess because it's it's maybe a little unusual and you know some people would even say undesirable like sailing is the wind is fickle and it just kind of is what it is but you know somebody mentioned that they were cruising there and going to a beach and dropping the anchor and then all the tourists clear out at night and you have the shore and tahoe all to yourself and you're surrounded by the mountains and Mm. it, it just seems like the most romantic thing in the world plus the color of the water looks like you're in the caribbean it's a bit of a different temperature but (laughs) (laughs) right yeah i hear it never really warms up i i hear some people say that the surface is warm and so you jump in and you're in warm water but if you get too deep then all of a sudden it's it's really really cold Mm. but another reason i want to go to tahoe is because i think it represents this sort of intersection of 
the way California is changing more than any other place. There's so much pressure on Tahoe in terms of housing, traffic, the economy and the service industry. And I just kind of want to go see it and see, I mean, I think all the decisions about Tahoe have already been made and it just is what it is. It's never going to be a small sleepy ski town again. It's a full on enclave of the Bay Area and it, it gets taken over on the weekends for skiing and it gets taken over in the summer and I just I kind of want to witness it and also you know now California just burns down every summer and I kind of want to see if you know what's going to happen in Tahoe is it yeah. is it even sustainable to to have this huge community there so many interesting questions that's why it's so wonderful being a journalist you get to ask these questions and dig into all these fascinating topics that's right it's it's a jack of all trades, master of none, and it's yeah. it's a way to not ever pick a major in in college and just do a little bit of everything and, and get to delve into into everything and then you know try and put a voice and a and a story behind it and put your little artistic twist on it. I love it. Speaking of art, that was the next topic I wanted to talk Segway. about. Not only are you a journalist, but you are an artist, a visual artist. And I walked up and met you in the doorway to your studio which is lined with these magnificent paintings you've done everything from easter island heads to uh kelly slater <laughs> oh you recognize kelly all right, all right. yeah i recognize call me kelly if you want that portrait <laughs> how'd you get into painting i've drawn all my life doodled uh just forever and i started to get into paints in the early 2000s. Uh, I was living in Maine at the time and um, I think it's probably always been a function of having time on my hands. I, I moved to Maine in winter 2002 and if you're in Maine in the winter you need something to do <laughs> inside and uh, I've just always liked uh, to try and express myself in some way either through through writing or through visual mediums like drawing or painting um, and I've always liked the water so I've always tried to to draw seascapes and I like landscapes as well and I I, I do portraits is my other my other thing but um, I don't know if I answered your question I just yeah that's fine that's I, a I was great answer always driven to do it just yeah. always driven so if people want to see see some of the artwork you've done where can they do that so one of the things I've done with my with my COVID year is to build a website for my art, and it's going to be timhenryartproject.com. Okay. Um, I haven't bought my domain name yet, and maybe by the time this is up, it'll it'll be ready to go. But I have built the website. Um, All right. Well, if it's up by the time we I post this, I'll put a link in the in the awesome. show notes. And my Instagram is, is timhenryartproject as oh, well, good. and. I hope I can say here that I'm I'm sort of a reluctant social media inductee, and I uh, you know it just kind of is what it is. But it, it it's really fun to to share my stuff. I've been working on it really hard for a long time now, and especially like the last seven years, I've been doing like ten or fifteen paintings a year, which for me is is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something I sort of toil away with and on my own, but it's great to show people. I mean, ultimately it's, it's for everyone else. It's, it's not just for me to, you know, fill up a studio with it's, it's for everyone else to see. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing that. What haven't we touched on or talked about that you might want to talk about? I, I wanted to say that 
I love probably more than anything else uh, telling stories about people that are new to sailing. It's so exciting to see people that have never done it before and people that don't come from the the background that I come from. I was handed sailing. I mean, I just I was born into it and it was handed to me and then I rejected it and then I came back to it and then I walked away from it again. And it's so cool to see people that come to sailing having never done it in their lives and that it just clicks for them and they make it their own and it it becomes their own little art like they they express it in their own way and they they find their little niche and that was my favorite part about working at Latitude was just people that were new to it. I want to say that Alana Connor was probably one of the people that I met who had never sailed and then took sailing and made it her own and has gone on to to now have more experience sailing than than most people will in their entire lifetimes and things like that are just so inspiring and so cool and alana who's been on the the podcast right now is in the middle of a campaign where she's doing a figure eight of new zealand to raise awareness of foster children which is very cool yeah you can check out the, her at Peregrina Sale. But I, I completely agree with you. I think that's one of the reasons we get along so well and we're on the same wavelength as to what kind of stories we wanted to do. Yes. As a sailor, I've, I grew up sailing, but I am in awe of those who come to it later, find it, and just become passionate about it and grab onto it. Yes. Because I don't know that angle of mm. it. So I really find that interesting of course i love hearing from the people who are master sailors who've done it their whole lives and who i have a lot that i can learn from but right one of the things i i i try to do with this podcast is have people on who just bought a boat and want to take off and see the world and people who've been doing it for decades so yeah 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 absolutely it, it gives me perspective on the sport and I always called it a sport and a lifestyle because neither one of those words really fully describe what, what yeah. sailing is. And so, well, it's so many different things that right. it's hard to pigeonhole, right? Yeah, I think Webb Childs called sailing uh, sailing is an art where wind is the medium. Or huh. I might be butchering that quote completely, but I like um, that. and I, I want to be careful. I don't I don't want to call sailing art too too much. I mean, that's certainly the way I look at it from my point of view, but. It's art to me in the sense that people take it and, and make it their own and, and incorporate their life and their personality and their routine and their money and their finances and everything else into how they can get themselves out on the water. Yeah. And yeah, that's just, it's, it never grows old seeing people, seeing people do that. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thanks so much, Tim. This has been a real pleasure sitting out here. Yeah. beautiful evening and having a good chat yeah thanks for coming out to san quentin village ben and uh, always always great to see you that's it for this episode you can find tim's recent pieces about salsalito on electronic latitudes they're really interesting and i encourage you to read them if you haven't yet thanks again for listening i'm ben shaw host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.